Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most mind-boggling homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. For this season, season seven, the focus is on murder cases where the murderer pled not guilty by reason of insanity or not mentally competent to stand trial because of a history of documented mental illness. And when I say mental illness, I don't mean that the killer or the murderer, they they just had, you know, some form of pent up rage and they just got mad and snapped one day. I, I'm not talking about mental illness like that. For these homicides, I am referring to cases where um, these killers were severely sick. They were mentally deranged. They had a history of well-documented mental illness and had at least one stay at a mental institution, but were somehow allowed to live and function in society when they showed clear signs that they probably should have been committed a long time ago. Mostly all of the murderers for this season have been sentenced indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins, which is the only real maximum security mental institution that we have for the criminally insane in this state, meaning that there's no real chance of them ever being released back into society because their murders were so bizarre so outlandish, so brutal, so pointless. And the homicide that I'm going to profile for this episode is the senseless, the horrific, the exorcism murder of her children that were committed by 28-year-old Zakia Latrice Avery and her best friend, 21-year-old Monifa Denise Sampry. And just like in all of the other episodes that are like in this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention because basically not much, if anything, is going on with the case. So last season, because I profiled 10 homicide, 10 unsolved homicides where the victims were female, it's only right that I pay the same amount of attention to the men. So for this season, all of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled, the victims will be males. And this week's, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 28-year-old Rufus Clark. Now, before I even get into this episode's homicide, let me give a special shout out to my very special listener, Angela Hall from St. Mary's County. 
I did get your message and I appreciate your encouragement. Thanks for all of your support and for listening and uh, for understanding and seeing why I do what I do. <laughs> and um, before we get into this episode, before we get into this particular episode, I have to put a disclaimer out there. Um, I've done a lot of episodes where the crimes have been horrific and brutal and stuff like that. And I probably should have put a disclaimer out on mostly all of them. But for this particular one, because I was able to get so much information in such detail, um, I just got to put a disclaimer out there of how horrific and brutal this crime was. So if you listen to this and with, you know, kids around, it's just probably, this is probably not the episode for them. Anyway, <clears throat> had to get that out the way. Now, whether um, I've, like I said, I've profiled at least a hundred murders so far on this podcast, whether they were notorious or unsolved. They were all brutal and they were all horrific, but none of them were like this particular one right here. Not like the, you know, not just because of the visit, vivid description of murder, but because of the brutality of it. I've, I've, I've heard it all. I mean, I've done crime scene cleanup. Many people that know me personally know that I've done crime scene cleanup before. I've um, done cases where people have had their brains blown out and stuff like that. I've seen it all, but for the life of me, I cannot imagine how these kids must have suffered throughout the human exorcism, basically. I cannot imagine how they would have ever have a normal life after what they went through. What I'm about to describe to you in detail came from an article that I read from the Washington Post. Um, but I'm gonna sum it all up for the article like this. And again, this is another case where it begins with religion as the foundation. 28-year-old Zakia Latrice Avery and 21-year-old Monifa Denise Sanford. They met in February of 2013 at their church, Exion, in Silver Spring. At the time, Monifa was a normal student who was taking classes at Montgomery County um, Community College, working at Giant Supermarket as a store clerk, living with her father. Zakia was a married woman with four kids, who at the time that she met Monifa, she lived with her husband at their home in Germantown, Maryland, and Montgomery County. The two joined uh, the dance ministry program at their church, where they spent most of their time going to services, church services, at least four times a week, completely flooding their brains and thoughts with visions of demons and shadows and the devils and being possessed and stuff like that. I don't know what kind of church this was, but. Zakia told Monifa about her fascination and curiosity about all these demons and stuff. And she showed her pictures and videos of demons on YouTube and Google. And they spent hours just watching videos and stuff like this, just flooding their brains with it. I mean, all of this demonic talk of being possessed combined with Zakia's newly found friendship with Monifa caused Zakia's husband to move out of their house in July of 2013. He probably was kicked out. 
And because Malifa said that she was now seeing shadows and hearing demons and voices at her father's house, Zakia convinced her that if she wouldn't leave her father's house immediately and move in with her and her kids, that she would end up being possessed herself or becoming a demon. I know it sounds weird, but a month after Zakia's husbands moved out in July, in August of 2013, Monifa moved in with Zakia and her four kids who were eight year old. I'm going to change the name because um, he was a survivor. Uh, Marcus Harris, uh, five year old uh, to let's say Tony Harris, two year old. Zayana Harris and one-year-old Norel Harris. Uh, together they lived in a regular-looking two-story townhome in the 1900 block of Cherry Bend Drive in Germantown. Suddenly, Zakia convinced Monifa to not only quit her job at Giant because she said that what God would want her to do, you know, would be to quit her job because demons were now in her job. It's just crazy, but Monifa stopped going to school, she stopped going to work, and they both stopped going to church because now, in their minds, demons were also at the church too. They both started staying home, staying low, getting out of sight from the public, isolating themselves. They kept the kids in the house. The kids didn't go to school. The kids didn't go outside and play. They didn't mingle with family and friends to pay the bills. The kid got on welfare. And Monifa got money from her mother who lived and worked in um, on the other side of the world in Japan. Literally on the other side of the world. They spent all day watching YouTube videos about demons and Satan and the Illuminati. They did all of this so much. It's crazy that eventually they started believing that these demons were now coming inside their home. In both of their minds, they were so delusional that they convinced themselves that somehow they were demonic killers or de demon assassins that were sent by God to spread the word of God. When the holidays came in December of 2013, Zakia's mother and father, um, her mother and father-in-law, which is basically her husband's parents, they showed up at the house uh, to spend time with the kids and they wouldn't even let they wouldn't even let them in the house. They wouldn't even let uh, her mother-in-law and father-in-law in the house. The kids had to come out to the car as cold as it was. And when they took them out of the house to visit the father for a few days in Philadelphia, Zakia and Monifa really went through it. With the kids not being in the house, they worked hard to get rid of all of the demons that they thought that was in the house. And to get away from the demons that they thought were possessing their home, they said, fuck it, wouldn't even go like into the house. This is in the middle of winter, y'all. And for nine days, nine whole days, y'all, they lived in a blue Toyota that was parked in the parking lot of a department store. This is mental illness at its finest, man. They didn't eat for the first three or four days. And then when starvation kicked in, they decided they was going to eat something. <laughs> they didn't take baths the whole night, the whole time they was in this car. They were just completely convinced that demons had taken over their home and they couldn't go home. But one day, like the day before, like the kids were due to come back 
um, from the time that they spent with their father, Zakia and Monifa decided to go back to the house. They took a damn shower and they got the kid, they got the house ready for the kids and everything to come back. So their father brought the kids back with, you know, new toys, food, clothes, and all of that stuff. But right after he left, Zakia and Monifa threw all of the toys and stuff away because they thought that now that they the toys and stuff was demon possessed. I I mean I seriously haven't heard of it all. I mean mental illness. This is this Lord. But I, I can't even imagine what these kids went through. The whole time I was reading about this, I was just like I can't even imagine. Anyway, these women were so delusional, so living in another world that because they thought even more demons were coming to their house like on the freezing night of january 16 2014 zakia took the kids out of the house again and put them in her car that was parked in front of her house basically she thought they were she thought that now all of a sudden that they were possessed so they had to get out the house so she put them in the dead of winter they had no coats on no shoes the car wasn't running, none of that. Just get in the car. Zakia and Monifa, meanwhile, they stayed in the house getting warm under heat. Since this was around nine o'clock at night in the dead of winter, a neighbor had walked by and seen the kids crying in the car. And she knocked on Zakia's door and told her that, um, you know, like, do you know that your kids are in the car crying? Zakia thought the neighbor, you know, she basically she told the neighbor that they was getting ready to go somewhere, so that's why they was in the car. Now another uh, like, but about forty minutes later, when the kids were still in the car, you know, freezing and crying, another neighbor knocked on the door and told her, "Look, you got to come out here and get your kids." Finally, both women came out of the house like pissed off, like they was being disturbed, and they took the kids back in the house with Monifa yelling and telling the man like because she seen him on his phone his cell phone like he was calling the police she telling him like you know mind your own business instead the neighbor called the cops it's exactly what he was doing he called the police and the cops showed up when they showed up around like 10 30 p.m the cops knocked on the um zakia's front door to talk to her about you know what the neighbors were saying about her but they wouldn't even open up the door Although the police could hear them inside, all they could do was report what the neighbor had seen to the family prime child abuse section. You know, it's not like they could break the door down or nothing like that. That's all they could do was make a report about it. And that's what they did and they left. So they made the decision to come back at another time later and investigate further. They should have came back that night well, maybe the police never should have left the house because what happened that night, just a few hours after the police left, was nothing short of a real live human exorcism out of this world. Around 1 a.m. on January 17, 2014, Zakia woke Monifa up out of her sleep and told her that the kids were now physically dead and that only their spirits were in the house. Think about that. That's mental illness. 
that's not, you know, oh, I'm mad, you know, um, I'm going to burn his car down, or I'm going to shoot. No, that is full-blown mental illness. I mean, geez. So, according to this article, in the Washington Post, Zakia told Monifa to get her Bible and put on the armor of God. Then they both went upstairs into the like the bedroom where the kids were sleeping, where Zakia's one-year-old son, Norel, who had been crying, and her two-year-old daughter, Zayana, who was sleeping in bed. Zakia convinced Monifa that now her one-year-old son was a demon because she swore that his eyes were turning black. So Zakia picks up her baby, puts her hands around her son's neck, and starts choking him. The baby starts crying, and when Zakia couldn't stop him from crying, Zakia and Monifa decided that they were going to just pray away the demons out of the baby. When the outlandish prayers and sermons and dances and all that ridic ridiculousness didn't work to stop the baby from crying, Zakia came to the conclusion that the only way to save her son was to take his life. Go get a knife, she tells Monifa. And Monifa did what she was told. And when she handed the six-inch knife to Zakia, Zakia got on top of her son, basically straddled her son, and sliced her baby's throat, cutting his throat at least eight times. After Zakia sliced his neck, she started plunging the knife into her baby's body and his chest, the side of his neck, cutting his juggler vein, completely ending his life. While Morel was being stabbed to death by his mother, Monifa was literally trying to calm him down, trying to console him as his mother killed him by rubbing his face and talking to him in baby talk and telling him, oh, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. The fuck, man? I mean, are you serious? This little baby died with defensive cuts all over his little palms and legs and thighs and fingers and... Oh, I mean, that, that, that really got to me, y'all. I'm not even gonna lie. To make the shit even worse and even more brutal, to keep the baby from struggling and fighting back, Monifa held his little arms down as his mother continued plunging the knife into her son's body. Because they didn't feel that the steak knife that they was using was cutting deep enough. These crazed maniacs moved his body to the floor so the knife would cut deeper into his body. And while Norell was dying on the bedroom floor, his mother stabbed him five times, puncturing his lung, his diaphragm, his liver, and his stomach. While all this shit was going on, the boy's two-year-old sister, Zayana, who was in the same room, saw all of this. All of it. And now Monifa told Zakia that guess what? She also looked like she had a demon in her. They tried that same praying routine to try to free the demon out of the two-year-old's body. When that seemed like it wasn't working, Monifa lifted her up by her neck, then slammed her on the floor and choked her until she passed out. Then Zakia started stabbing her daughter at least 13 times with the knife going completely through her body each time. I mean, I, 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 it's just, 
reading about this is really they did all this shit with the bedroom door wide open and guess who seen all of this guess who was standing in the doorway screaming for them to stop Zakia's eight-year-old son who had been sleeping in the next room but when he heard all the crying and screaming he got up to see what was going on and he screamed for them to stop I can't even imagine I mean of course Zakia thought that now he too looked like he had a demon in him so they both started attacking him too but Marcus did his best to fight back he was punched in the face and choked but Marcus kept fighting back so to keep him from fighting back his mother stabbed him in his chest with the same steak knife that she used on her other kids with a punctured lung Marcus fell to the floor. Y'all, I can't even I can't even make this up, but with all of this going on, the noise, the commotion, the screaming, the fighting, the sheer craziness, now doing all of this, all all of this, Zakia's five-year-old daughter, Tanika, woke up out of her sleep, came in the hallway, crying because she probably couldn't believe what she was seeing and hearing, which was her mother and her friend killing her brother and sister so you already guessed it Zakia thought that oh my god she too had a demon in her so they both started attacking her five-year-old daughter too but Zakira ordered Monifa to grab her and when she did Monifa choked the child until she was unconscious but when she started the, the child started coming to again her mother stabbed her in her chest puncturing her lung. That little girl crawled to her bedroom like her brother had done. After Z Zakia attacked all of her kids, now guess what? Guess who else was a demon? In her eyes, guess who else needed to be assassinated? Now she thought Monifa was a demon. Now all of a sudden, out of the blue, her fellow assassin Monifa was turning into a demon. And she started attacking and stabbing her multiple times in the chest, using the same knife that she used on her kids. Monifa fought back hard though, but Zakia choked and stomped on her and tried to cut her throat like she did her all of her kids. But Monifa was able to break away from her. She was able to run downstairs and she got a bigger and longer knife from the kitchen. This knife was about 12 inches long with a wooden handle. And when she went back upstairs to face Zakia, Monifa told her that, guess what? You're not just gonna keep, I'm, not, I'm just not gonna let you keep stabbing me. <laughs> but Zakia still managed to slice Monifa on her face and she was able to take the knife from her and stab her again. They continued fighting and struggling with the knife and Zakia stabbed Monifa again in her stomach and twice in her back. The kids were in their bedrooms dying and these two maniacs fighting and cutting and stabbing each other like a, a scene out of a damn movie. All of a sudden, the fighting just stops. When they sitting there cutting and bloodied and just realizing that like, what are we doing? The fighting just stopped. Zakia decided that they needed to get rid of all of their bloody clothes. And as they took a shower and put their clothes in plastic bags and threw the two knives out of the window like it was nothing, 
They, they threw him out of an open window that had uh, basically a window in the middle of the January that had been left open while all this was going on. Just tossed the windows out, tossed the, I mean, tossed the knives out like it was nothing. The knives ended up on the front, front lawn. They both took the kids' clothes off, washed their bodies, washed the bodies of Norel and Zayan, and left them on the bed in the master bedroom. Then they had the nerve to help Marcus take a fucking shower with a punctured lung, then wrapped him in a bedroom sheet, I mean a bed sheet, but for Tanika, they left her in her bed for some reason without touching her or like washing her up or doing anything. What a freaking disaster, y'all. But guess what? This is how God works. Remember the night before when the police showed up because the neighbors called them and the cops were like, you know, they will be back. At 9.40 a.m. the next morning, the same cops came back to follow up. And when they pulled up, guess what was the first thing that they saw? They saw, they found the knobs that Zakia and Monifa had thrown out of the window. And both of the knobs still had blood on them. The police looked over at Zakia's car, the blue Toyota that the kids were in the night before, and inside the car, they just happened to see a keychain with keys on it that was still in the car on the back seat. The car's doors were conveniently unlocked, so the cops went inside the car and got the keys. They knocked on the front door of the house first, of course, and this time, when nobody came to the door, the police decided to see if any of the keys on the keychains was the key to the front door. By the grace of God, they were right. And one of the keys worked. And when the police came into that house, shocking everybody, Zakir ran downstairs carrying Marcus, Marcus, who was still wrapped in that bedsheet. They could see that Monifa was hurt. But Zakia tried to run with Marcus out the front door to put him in the back seat of her car, but the police stopped her. EMS personnel showed up after the police called them, and Marcus was rushed to Children's Hospital in critical condition where a chest tube was put in his left lung. That boy stayed in the ICU for six days because of what his mother did to him. Zakia's daughter, Tanika, was found in her bed and also rushed to Children's Hospital where she too was treated for blood loss and given a chest tube because she also had a collapsed lung. The police found Norel and Zayana both dead in the bed in the master bedroom and EMS personnel pronounced them dead at the scene. An autopsy on Norel later determined that the baby died from sharp force injuries resulting in extensive blood loss and blunt force injuries on his left and right side of his head. Zakira's two-year-old daughter Zayana autopsy later determined that she died from sharp force injuries and signs of asphyxiation, stab wounds on the left side of her chest that pulverized her small rib cage and went completely through her left lung several times. Since Monifa was also stabbed, she was rushed to Suburban Hospital 
while she was being trans transported to the hospital, she was sane enough to tell EMS personnel that somebody else had broken into their home and hit her in her head. She told them that when she came to, the killer was trying to kill her. Later, around 9 p.m. that night, Monifa started talking to the police officer that had been guarding her hospital room and she started confessing. For more than 30 minutes, Monifa detailed what really happened in that house and the officer could barely believe what he was hearing. But the officer called the homicide detectives that were assigned to the case and when they came to the hospital, Monifa confessed to the homicide detectives in even more vivid detail what had happened in that house. Both Monifa and Zakia were arrested and charged with first-degree murder, but because Zakia had a history of repeated stays in various psychiatric institutions and was determined to have been suffering from delusions, hallucinations, borderline personality disorder, and bipolar disorder with psychotic features, she was quickly found not criminally responsible for her actions and committed indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins. Monifa pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder, but because she also had mental illness that included delusional hallucinations and voices where she thought that she was Satan the devil, combined with a history of multiple suicide attempts. Monifa was also determined to be not criminally responsible and she was also sent indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins Hospital for treatment. Although neither Zakia nor Monifa ever showed a drop of remorse for any of their actions, Zakia did tell the detectives that basically she killed the kids to release the demons from their bodies so that they could go to heaven. I'm glad the children are in heaven, but I miss them, she calmly told the detectives. Whew, Lord. Y'all, this woman had no criminal history, no reports of child abuse, no reports of neglect. Neighbors said that she was a loving mother, no criminal record. That's why this case was so notorious. A human exorcism? Are you serious? I mean, I feel so bad for the kids who survived this. Like, how could they ever be sane after this? How could they ever be normal? I feel for the father, you know, who I heard that once he heard the details of what happened to his kids, how he had to be forcibly removed from the courtroom because he lost it. You know, I, I can't imagine what he went through and is going through probably to this day you know people need to check on their friends who seem like they're off and they have kids you know who may be going through some things and are keeping things inside and you know not really talking who you got that feeling that they might be a little stressed out and something's not right you know i think how could she not have shown warning signs but they did say she had a history of mental illness but she was able to you know give birth to four kids <laughs> what a mess i mean it was just brutal just the whole crime was just completely brutal and it was just horrific i mean i remember when this happened i 
I remember when this happened, I was shocked and surprised, but for some reason, I didn't get a lot of information about it because this happened in Montgomery County. I lived in Baltimore City. Um, sometimes when we don't get a lot of that uh, side of news in Montgomery County, but this, because it got national attention, national attention. Yeah, I remember this. I remember thinking an exorcism and I was like, wow, wow. <laughs> but I knew that they both were going to be found not criminally responsible because of mental illness. You had to be crazy to do something like this. You had to be. It, it was just completely horrific. And that's why this made the list for uh, one of the most notorious murders with a mental illness basis or uh, defense-based <laughs> crime or homicide in Maryland. This was definitely going to be included on the list for one of the most notorious homicides in Maryland with a mental illness uh, foundation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now it's time to move on to this week's Unsolved Homicide. And like I say in every single episode, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides in Maryland that were noteworthy and may have received a fair amount of press and attention, this podcast also shines a light on the many homicides that we see in this state that did not receive a lot of attention or press, if any, if any attention or anything at all. These killings are so common in this state that they don't really always make the news. They don't always make a Fox 45 or even Murder, Inc. Some, not at the bottom of the sign, none of that. Sometimes when a person gets killed in this state, if you don't hear nothing else about it or see nothing else about it, it's almost like it didn't even happen. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state is completely, completely mind-boggling. Homicide detectives obviously cannot do it all by themselves, especially when they are outnumbered and kept busy all the time. And what happens to the cases where nobody is talking at all? Or the cases where because of the victim's past, nobody is talking or the detectives, they're not really trying to, it seems like they're not really trying to investigate it because they, the victim, quote unquote, they had it coming. What happened to these type of homicides or these type of cases where it just seems like the killer simply just got away with murder? It just seems like if literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides, not only because it seems like nobody cares, but because the public simply just forgot all about it. It's almost like I hate to say it, but it's like we have become immune to homicide in the state. Well, on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the the murder or the case did receive a lot of attention or notoriety, notoriety and attention, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the attention that they deserve. 
And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 28-year-old Rufus Clark. On Tuesday, May 21st, 2019, someone shot 28-year-old Rufus Clark in the 5400 block of Morris Avenue in Camp Springs, Maryland. The police responded at around 1240 a.m. and found Rufus lying on a sidewalk, shot several times in his upper body, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. Rufus, who himself was from the 23rd Parkway in Temple Hills, had two children, and they were left without a father. So if you have any information at all in this unsolved homicide, any information at all, no matter how mundane it may seem, no matter how small it may seem, anything, please call the Homicide Unit at 301-772-4295 or you can call Crime Solvers at 1-866-411-TIPS. That's 8477. Or you can go online at www.pqcrimesolvers.com. Once again, those numbers are the Homicide Unit at 301-772-4295. Or Crime Solvers at 1-866-411-8477. Which is basically 1-866-411-TIPS, T-I-P-S. Or you can go online at www.pqcrimesolvers.com. You can remain anonymous, people. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to sub subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. For paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I do what I do, how I do, how I do what I do, <laughs> and why I really got into true crime, why I started writing true crime books. Um, a lot of people think that this is just something that I just woke up with one day and decided to do. Nope. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I mean, a young kid, like 11, 12, I've been fascinated by true crime, particularly, you know, homicides. Um, I always saw something was wrong with me and all that. But uh, to get into further detail, like I said, you got to click on that episode. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, it's a really, it's a real therapeutic message to this world of madness that I live in. I promise you. Just click on the past episode entitled why I do what I do, and you'll understand more about why I'm so much into true crime. I also want to let my listeners know that for season one, um, which was the child murder season, uh, six of those episodes have been hand-selected for film production, meaning production has officially begun on the video or docu documentary production version of those episodes. I don't mean like the podcast version where it's going to be just a video of uh, me recording, uh, me talking about those episodes. Nope. 
these are uh, documented, basically a documentary that's based off of these episodes. And the very first documentary, it's going to be the very first documentary produced by Savage Life Productions. And it's going to be based off the very first episode that was featured on this podcast. So if you didn't know what the very first episode was, then maybe you should probably check that out. Yeah, I was a little rusty back then. Yeah, I sounded kind of nervous and all that. But ignore that part and just focus on that, what the theme or what the focus of that particular episode was. And it's going to be a documentary that's going to be uh, basically based off that episode. And that's going to be coming out this summer. So tune in because the video version will be coming out to you soon later this year. And I will definitely let you know where it's available on this podcast. And while you're at it, check out the new website, um, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com, where you can access episodes one through six. And Marylands uh, is spelled MDS, MostNotoriousMurders.com. And actually, you can episode, you can access all of the episodes. You can find also links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990s through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. You can also find links to my local uh, bestsellers, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Child of Baltimore. You can also check me out on the latest season of Payback, which airs on TV1. And you can also check me out on the Oxygen Network for um, Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial uh, killer, Josephine Gray. And if you fit, really feel like doing some digging, you can catch me on TV1's Justice by Any Means or uh, TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the uh, North Carolina uh, killer, child killer, Peter Moses. Or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the Element Network. Y'all remember Killer Kids? <laughs> uh, for Element Network. Uh, I think I profiled uh, the Full Metal Jacket episode where I profiled Sarah Citroni, uh, Teen Killer Sarah Citroni, and uh, Jason DeLong. Um, once the Season 1 documentary videos are available, uh, you will also be able to find the links to the videos here at MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com. So be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another hideous homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.